Welcome to the History of Chemistry podcast. I'm Steve Cohen, your host, and this is episode 68, Transuranium Elements, in which scientists finally go beyond the known periodic table. Thanks to those who already support this podcast. Support the continuation of this podcast at Patreon. The website is www.patreon.com forward slash the history of chemistry. Quite a while back, we heard an episode about how scientists filled in the periodic table up through uranium in the 1940s, often by bombarding a sample of a known element with other light elements like hydrogen or helium, crashing together nuclei to make larger ones. Another particle useful in bombarding known nuclei was the neutron, which has no electric charge. A positively charged particle like a proton or alpha particle, when slamming into an atom, encounters a positively charged nucleus. Like charges repel each other, so a proton or alpha particle will either veer away from the nucleus or you need a really high speed to overcome the repulsion. A neutron has no such problem. The Italian physicist Enrico Fermi began to try this kind of experiment in the 1930s. In fact, he discovered that beams of neutrons need to be slowed down first by crossing through wax or water. Then, these neutrons have only the speed of room temperature molecules banging into each other. Such neutrons are called thermal neutrons, with a slow enough speed to be more likely to get absorbed into a nucleus instead of whizzing past. Often the neutrons did not create a new element, but a different isotope of a known element. If you add a neutron, mass 1, to an oxygen-16 nucleus, you get oxygen-17, whose nucleus just has one more neutron. But often the new nucleus then becomes radioactively unstable with an extra neutron. So, if you add another neutron to oxygen-18, you get radioactive oxygen-19. The oxygen-19 nucleus then decays radioactively by emitting a beta particle, also called an electron. Frederick Soddy showed that such decay by removing one negative charge, increases the number of positive protons left in the nucleus, making a fluorine-19 nucleus, which is stable. The end result is that slamming thermal neutrons into oxygen-18 transmutes the atoms into fluorine-19. Well, why not add a neutron to uranium, so Fermi thought, to get the next as-yet-unknown element? He tried this experiment and thought he succeeded, but nobody else could isolate any element with a higher atomic number than uranium. Among the teams trying to find such atoms were German Otto Hahn and Austrian Lisa Meitner. Chemically, they added barium to the bombarded radium product. A precipitate they got had a lot of radioactivity, so maybe this was radium. Radium, though, is right underneath barium in the periodic table and is very similar chemically to barium, 
and you'd expect to get radium in parallel with barium if you do similar chemical treatments. Alas, no, they couldn't find radium. Hahn wondered in 1938, after the failure to find radium, if the radioactivity he and Meitner found was barium itself. But if uranium transmuted into barium, the change in atomic number was not one or two, but thirty-six. How could this be? Did he shear the uranium atom in two pieces? This would be a fission reaction. Lisa Meitner, Jewish, fled to Sweden with the Nazi occupation of Austria, and published the results, which caused consternation among the scientific community. It turns out Hahn and Meitner were right. This was nuclear fission, which could lead to atomic bombs. And now the topic leaves radiochemistry and enters nuclear physics. So I leave the topic here. But a couple of years later, in 1940, two Americans, Edwin McMillan and Philip Abelson, retried neutron bombardment of uranium samples. They did find something new: an atom with atomic number 93. As an analogy of uranium to the planet Uranus, they named the new element neptunium for the next planet further out, Neptune. The reason no one ever detected neptunium in any natural rock or mineral samples is that its radioactive half-life is at most two million years, depending on the isotope. Any neptunium in the Earth's crust upon the formation of the Earth has long since decayed, leaving no trace. The next year, in early 1941, a young American radiochemist named Glenn Seaborg, who got his doctorate studying nuclear beams' effects on lead, joined Edwin McMillan, and the pair found the next element, number 94. To continue the Uranus-Neptune-Pluto series, they named the new element plutonium. Plutonium is more stable than neptunium. Its longest half-life is about 80 million years, but this is still too short to have lasted since the creation of the Earth. Hence, we find no plutonium in the Earth's crust. Chemists call these new elements transuranium elements, or also transuranic elements, for they come after uranium on the periodic table. Seaborg quickly became the expert in isolating tiny amounts of transuranium elements from bombarded samples. So he and his team, over the next decade and a half, found element ninety-five, americium, with a half-life of seventy-four hundred years; element ninety-six, curium, with a half-life of sixteen million years; element ninety-seven, berkelium, with a half-life of fourteen hundred years; element ninety-eight, californium, with a half-life of nine hundred years. Element ninety-nine, einsteinium, with a half-life of one and a third years. Element one hundred, fermium, with a half-life of only one hundred one days. And element one hundred one, mendelevium, 
with a half-life of 51 and a half days. As you can see, gradually, the half-lives of these elements get shorter as their atomic number increases. They just get less and less stable, so it gets harder and harder to make and especially isolate the elements definitively. I should note that the other person heavily involved in these discoveries and who became more and more involved as the 1950s wore on was American Albert Giorso. We'll be right back. Hi, and welcome to Hiss and Tell, a cat podcast where we delve deep into the fascinating world of feline behavior with your host, me, Christina Wilson, a professional animal behaviorist. Each episode features insightful discussions with leading veterinarians, dedicated researchers and scientists, experts in cat behavior and training, and so much more. Join me as we decode the complexities of pet loss, unravel the mysteries of feline health and behavior, and discover the latest research findings. I'll meet you at Hiss and Tell. Of course, where exactly do you put these new elements on the periodic table? Seaborg, based on some fast chemical results and analogies of electron orbital structure, proposed that these new elements extend the very bottom row after uranium. Like the lanthanides above, these are the actinides named after actinium. Discovering an element is quite prestigious and brings the discoverer fame, if not fortune, in the scientific world. For one thing, if you discover an element, you get to name it. By the late 1950s, there was competition with two other sites. In the Soviet Union, the Joint Institute for Nuclear Research in Dubna, north of Moscow, and the Nobel Institute in Sweden. So, in 1957, the Nobel Institute claimed discovery of element 102. The Swedes called it Nobelium immediately, and the International Union of Pure and Applied Chemistry approved the name. We will talk about this International Union of Pure and Applied Chemistry in a future episode. For now, just know that chemists call it by its acronym, I-U-P-A-C, pronounced IUPAC. The following year, the Americans at Berkeley redid the Swedish experiment and could not find the isotope of nobelium the Swedes claimed, but found a different one. Yet, the Americans retained the name nobelium anyway. The Swedes then retracted their claim. Meanwhile, the Soviet JINR decided to try to confirm this nobelium, and by 1964 showed they had found nobelium, but not exactly what the Americans observed. After some years of controversy going back and forth, in which the JINR proposed and used the name Joliotium for element 102, IUPAC eventually decided that JINR clearly found a true isotope of element 102. Only in 1994 was the name officially ratified by IUPAC because it had a history of being used for three decades, even though JINR was now the official discoverer. IUPAC the following year offered an apology by naming element 102 Flerovium for the Laboratory of Discovery and its director, Georgi Flerov. 
there was a huge outcry because the true discoverer's desires were ignored, and in 1997 the name reverted to Nobelium. Nobelium's half-life is, at most, 58 minutes. Element 103 also had a serious controversy over its discovery. Berkeley scientists, while claiming success with Element 102, also claimed to find Element 103 in 1958, but their experiment was really not conclusive. It took another three years till 1961. Albert Giorso at Berkeley did much more convincing experiments to show synthesis of Element 103, though there was still one unanswered criticism. At this time, the Berkeley team named the element Lorentzium, and IUPAC accepted the name. JINR, however, began to study Lorentzium in 1965, and for the next couple of years observed decay products of this element, but their experiments also were not quite conclusive. Even so, they wanted to call element 103 Rutherfordium. Competing experiments continued for some years, but then Berkeley Labs did a full range of experiments confirming their 1961 discovery. After a couple of decades, IUPAC examined the results from both organizations and decided that, ultimately, the Berkeley work was the icing on the cake. Lorentzium's half-life is, depending on its isotope, not more than 11 hours. So, how do you isolate and verify an incredibly tiny amount of radioactive element that's disintegrating measurably as you do your fast experiments? For plutonium's case, the first transuranium element to be properly isolated, in late summer 1942, it went like this. Plutonium was made by deuterons, that is, heavy hydrogen nuclei with one proton plus one neutron, bombarding 5 kilograms of uranyl nitrate hexahydrate. They then ran fluoride cycles, which are treatments with ultra-hot fluorine gas, to form uranium hexafluoride gas. The gas goes away, leaving plutonium. This impure material was concentrated with cerium and lanthanum rare earth elements in concentrated sulfuric acid. Adding hydrofluoric acid and potassium fluoride gave a metal fluoride precipitate. To get the purer material into solution, they added more sulfuric acid to make a metal sulfate. The plutonium was converted to a suitable valence by adding a mixed silver oxide with valences 1 and 3. Then they could pull out the rare earths with more hydrofluoric acid, leaving plutonium in solution they could put the solution in a centrifuge and isolate the plutonium. The total weight of the plutonium was 1 microgram. So even with an element of a half-life of millions of years, plutonium, we are talking tiny amounts. But over time, during the Cold War, it became possible to produce kilogram amounts for nuclear bombs and do some serious analytical chemistry on plutonium. Plutonium is made as a byproduct from nuclear power plants. 
I don't want to repeat the gory details for isolating Neptunium from bombarded uranium, but it was a somewhat similar process, including hydrofluoric acid, potassium bromate, sulfur dioxide, giving 45 micrograms in 1944. Nuclear power plants give at least grams worth enough to do chemical study and analysis. Americium was even harder. Though the process was similar to the previous two, only a few micrograms were recovered, but in addition, an absorption spectrum of valence 3 americium was observed and showed that its difference with the absorption of plutonium was similar to the difference between each element above on the periodic table, the difference in spectra from europium to samarium. To even get curium, the researchers slammed neutrons for an entire year into a 4.48 milligram sample of americium to get 150 micrograms of curium. To separate the two elements, they put it all, they put it all into an ionic, they put it all into an ion exchange chromatography system with aqueous citric acid as the solution. They ran the solution multiple times through the chromatograph to recover 115 micrograms in 50 milliliters. They decomposed citrate with nitric and sulfuric acid to precipitate curium hydroxide. Curium decays into plutonium plus helium gas, which is rapidly visible because curium has such a short half-life. This also means there is rapid buildup of plutonium. For berkelium and californium, researchers bombarded plutonium with neutrons to get maybe a microgram of each. Again, the separation of the two elements was by ion exchange chromatography. As J.C. Wallman wrote in his paper from 1959 in the Journal of Chemical Education using, quote, a very small ion exchange column, unquote. They ran a tube from the column right into a cuvette, a small vessel in a spectrometer, to study the spectra. Unfortunately, they saw no absorption peaks. They did measure some magnetic properties to determine what the orbitals stayed in, F orbitals. By more recent times, somewhere between 10 and 20 milligrams of berkelium can be harvested per year. The first isolation of Einsteinium took a slightly different path. Recall the early 1950s and several countries with nuclear weapons detonated them on isolated Pacific atolls to see what happens. One explosion of the first hydrogen bomb occurred on November 1, 1952 at Enewatak Atoll. from which researchers collected some material from the nuclear fallout nearby. They brought the material to the Berkeley lab, where scientists studied it, and found 200 atoms of Einsteinium. The discovery was classified as secret, so the laboratory only published results three years later. By 1961, researchers could get 10 micrograms of Einsteinium for study. One humorous anecdote is that the nuclear test was codenamed Project Panda, so the scientists joked about naming the element pandemonium. 
There is a detailed brochure online called Separation and Purification of Berkelium 249 and Einsteinium 254, published by Oak Ridge Laboratory in January 2020, if you want to know more. Fermium was, like Einsteinium, discovered in 1953 in radioactive material from the 1952 nuclear test and kept secret till 1955. Typical amounts that can be isolated are picograms, trillionths of a gram, to micrograms. I should note that the Nobel Institute in Sweden was able to create a small number of atoms of fermium in 1954 by shooting oxygen ions with 8 protons at uranium to make nuclei with 100 protons. If we go to Lorentzium, a mere 1,500 atoms were used to perform chemical studies of its properties. We can discuss some of the names given these elements. Neptunium and Plutonium were after the planets Neptune and Pluto, though Pluto is now considered a dwarf planet. Americium is named after America, as opposed to the element right above it in the periodic table, europium. Curium is after Marie and Pierre Curie. Berkelium is named for the city where the discoveries were made, Berkeley, California. And Californium is obviously for the American state of California. Einsteinium is after Albert Einstein, who had just recently died, as is Fermium after Enrico Fermi. Mendelevium is for Dmitry Mendeleev. Nobelium is after Alfred Nobel of dynamite and prize fame, while Lorentzium is named for Ernest Lawrence, founder of the Berkeley Laboratories. With Lorentzium, we reach the 1960s, and we also reach completion of the 5F orbitals of the actinide elements, all metals. Technically, Lorentzium is a d-orbital element, but there is some slippage in the terminology. Electrons moving at ultra-high speeds around the outer orbitals of these elements mean that Einstein's relativistic equations begin to seriously affect the electron's properties, and you need to take into account relativity now. All actinide elements have valence 3 and 4, and are known to react with halogens to give trichloride and tetrachloride salts. If you put an actinide in an acid, you also get a salt. They also form oxides, particularly dioxides. What happens to transuranium elements, their discovery and even naming rights beyond Lorentzium, element 103, will be discussed in later episodes. In our next episode, how the International Union of Pure and Applied Chemistry, the organization that standardizes names of elements and chemicals, came to be, is the subject. Until then, brave the elements! Thank you for listening to the History of Chemistry podcast.